Thanks for joining us for Access Utah, six minutes past the nine o'clock hour. And before we jump into today's topic, unfinished business from yesterday. You recall we had a conversation about Joe Hill, labor icon and songwriter for Industrial Workers of the World or Wobblies. He was executed by a Utah firing squad in November of 1915 after being convicted of two murders in a controversial trial. And there's a, a new uh, a CD out by John McCutcheon. We talked with him, Cy Khan, who's author of a play on uh, Joe Hill. I brought uh, this response um, later after the program from Tim Torkelson in uh, Provo, Utah. He's written a poem. I guess you could consider it a song. I'll just uh, give this to you. Joe Hill had come from Sweden for to find a better life, but all he ever got from Uncle Sam was death and strife. Traveling the country, working odd jobs as he could, Joe Hill was lonely, shunned, and often quite misunderstood. He wanted every worker to be unionized and safe from bosses who would otherwise treat each man as a waif. He was called an anarchist and wobbly by the mob of plutocrats and toadies, every one of them a snob. They killed poor Joe with bullets for a crime he didn't do, then burned him up for ashes that were scattered like the dew. His dust still chokes the money bags who exploit human flesh, from the barrios of Chile to the slums of Bangladesh. That's a little uh, song by uh, Tim Torkelson of Provo. Thanks for that, Tim. And uh, then uh, also following the program yesterday, we got a couple of emails from our friends Elaine Thatcher and Hal Cannon, uh, each of them alerting me to uh, events that we uh, didn't know about during the program uh, on the centennial of uh, Joe Hill's death, uh, the centennial year, which is this year. In September, there's going to be a big concert, and this is being spearheaded by Ken Sanders uh, from uh, Salt Lake City and others. Uh, they're going to get a uh, concert together on September 5th. It's going to be in Sugar House. That's the site of the old prison. And uh, it's going to be headlined, apparently, by uh, Judy Collins. And uh, so there's there's some others that are going to be performing there. You can The best place to go for this is to go to Ken Sanders' website, kensandersbooks.com. And uh, preceding that, they're having a fundraising event on May 23rd, 7 p.m., uh, by the way, there's a Kickstarter campaign. You can participate there. So thanks for the heads up on that about Joe Hill. Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 1891, Lucian Nunn, working with Nikola Tesla and George Westinghouse, pioneered the world's first commercial production of high-tension alternating current for long-distance transmission, something Thomas Edison deemed dangerous and irresponsible. After creating the Telluride Power Company, Nunn constructed the state-of-the-art Olmsted Power Plant in Provo Canyon and Ontario Powder Works in Niagara Falls. To support this new technology, he developed an imaginative model of industrial training that became so compelling that he ultimately abandoned his entrepreneurial career to devote his wealth and talents to experimenting with a new model of liberal education. In 1917, Nunn founded Deep Springs College in Eastern California. The school remains one of the most daring, progressive, and selective institutions of higher ed- ed- learning in America. We're going to learn this interesting history and talk about issues in higher education today. And we bring in on telephone uh, Jackson Newell, Professor Emeritus of Educational Leadership, University of Utah, author of a new book, Electric Edge of Academe, out from University of Utah Press. And uh, Professor Newell, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Appreciate you joining us. Also in studio is uh, Ross Peterson, former Vice President of University Advancement, Professor of History at Utah State University. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Should say that uh, each of my guests is a past president of Deep Springs College. Yes, sir. Very, very much connected with uh, with with college, and I believe Professor Peterson, you're still a trustee. I am. That's correct. I'm not sure if you still have a connection, Professor Newell. Um, no, I don't. 
yeah, you you were president for some nine years and trustee for many years, and uh, have written this book. Uh, so let's let's uh, jump in to first with uh, Lucien L. Nunn, or uh, I guess he he went by L. L. Nunn. Generally, yes, that was his British heritage, going by initials rather than by his first name. Yeah, L. L. Nunn. Uh, so tell me a bit about the man. He was he's short in stature, pretty intense man. He was. Nunn was born in 1853, and uh, which was significant uh, for what he did later in that uh, his formative years between the ages of 9 and 13 uh, were during the Civil War. Uh, his family lived in northern Ohio, and therefore, uh, as a young man, he had uh, great responsibility for the family's uh, farm and business because uh, practically all the men in, in the community were gone to war. So uh, he had an early uh, experience with a great deal of responsibility. And the second thing that was important, I think, in uh, his formative uh, years was the fact that he had a reading disability, probably akin to uh, dyslexia today, and he learned to compensate for that. So uh, interestingly, he never graduated from high school or college, but he ended up winning a law degree from Harvard University and uh, then going going on in a very different field. Uh, to distinguish himself as an entrepreneur in uh, hydroelectric power. Yeah, tell me about that. This is interesting. We we did a program on Nikola Tesla not long ago. Uh, pretty interesting. This battle of the AC versus DC. Uh, Nunn was definitely on the AC side. Yes, he was. A necessity is the mother of invention, they say, and uh, it certainly worked in his case. He had uh, ended up in Telluride, Colorado, at the very beginnings of that uh, mining boom there, and uh, through a work of circumstances, he ended up uh, becoming uh, a very prominent man in the town, owning the uh, the bank, the newspaper, a whole string of mines and uh, real estate holdings. And uh, there was, in the late 1880s, uh, they ran out, ran out of uh, energy, uh, having burned all the wood off the hillsides to run the steam engines for the stamp mills and the mines. So none was faced with the task at that point of trying to figure out how to keep uh, his own empire, as well as the uh, that whole region, from going into an economic collapse. That led him to uh, a look at the possibility of uh, hydroelectric power. Uh, and, uh, yes, yeah. Uh, I wonder. Uh, yeah, tell me a little bit more about Telluride, and then then I want to get into uh, he. Nunn uh, developed several operations in Utah. as a connection to Utah, but but first of all, the Telluride. Indeed. So uh, in in Telluride, um, he had to find some way uh, to uh, reduce the ore uh, in those stamp mills uh, much cheaper than they had been able to do it. So while everybody else was uh, who owned mines and had economic interests in early Telluride were wringing their hands, none was off to London and Pittsburgh and other places uh, exploring the possibilities for uh, using Nikola Tesla's alternating current uh, idea, which uh, George Westinghouse had become the manufacturer to uh, to try to challenge Edison's dominance with uh, direct current. So uh, none uh, knew that direct current wouldn't work, even though Salt Lake City already had electricity downtown at that time, because direct current will not transfer very far over over wires. So uh, AC was the answer. None went to uh, George C. West, George Westinghouse in Pittsburgh and. The fall of 1890, and uh, proposed that uh, Tesla had the theory. He, Westinghouse, had the manufacturing capability, and uh, none could build the power plant, the dam, and so forth, and they could test uh, the viability of alternating current uh, for commercial use. And uh, indeed, uh, the deal came together just as planned, and in June of 1891, 
Uh, not had strong power lines about a, two and a half miles up to his Gold King mine. Uh, the power plant was running. They flipped the great switch uh, to engage the generator, and uh, a telegraph came down almost immediately from the mine saying uh, that the the engine up there, a 100-horsepower electric engine, had uh, leapt into action. Hmm. And that was the beginning worldwide of the separation of uh, the generation of power of any kind uh, from the use of power. And this this jump-started industry, right? This, it was like magic. It was, <laughs> it was, it was uh, yeah. A, a leap forward here. That's right. Uh, and interestingly, the, the the whole battle, Edison was pretty pretty ruthless in his in his PR. He you know he he said this was AC was going to be dangerous, kill people and such. He did indeed. Uh, used every scare tactic he could, but mm-hmm. uh, in the end, alternating current, of course, uh, swamped DC, except for certain kinds of uses today where mm-hmm. DC is definitely advantageous. So, uh, LL Nunn, he's a, he's a young man, uh, ambitious. He's he's hit the crest of the wave here. And he's, he's, I guess, at the beginning stages of amassing a pretty, pretty big fortune. He did. Uh, as soon as he, uh, mining was his main um, economic interest in Telluride, but as soon as he achieved this uh, alternating current long-distance transmission uh, breakthrough, uh, he pretty much backed out of the mining business and spent the rest of his, uh, his the, the heart of his career uh, developing hydroelectric power plants which he eventually did around 1903 to 1905 by building the huge uh, power plant at Niagara Falls. Yeah, that, that was... the city of Buffalo. That was a huge, huge project, famous project. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Uh, tell me about uh, L.L. Nunn in, in Utah. Well, uh, as soon as things were, uh, were working well in Telluride, he was thinking uh, much bigger thoughts about what he could do. So he needed a place where there was a lot of snow and... Uh, water up high and uh, demand for electricity down low in the valleys. And it uh, turned out after sending his, uh, his industrial scouts out around the west that the Wasatch Front was the place. So uh, he ended up uh, working from Grace, Idaho to uh, Beaver, Utah, and developing power plants in the 1890s and uh, early 1900s. He had a run-in with, uh, with the famous Mormon industrialist, Jesse Knight. Yes, he did. Uh, Knight was developing his own... Uh, power uh, interest down in uh, Utah Valley, and uh, he and Nunn squared off, um, and uh, it came down to a contest over uh, who had the right of way, and as uh, Jesse Knight was building his power plant, uh, his power lines, excuse me, uh, they had to cross Nunn's power lines. Nunn didn't like that, so he cut down the poles uh, <laughs> that Knight had erected, and it turned out that uh, Knight had, uh, in fact, placed his poles outside the right of way that Nunn had. So their lines did cross successfully, and they ended up being uh, friends rather than uh, rather unpleasant competitors, as they were at the beginning. <laughs> and uh, I think Mormon—you're right—Mormon leaders uh, came to came to like Holmes, uh, came to like uh, none. Yes, uh, and he was uh, the antithesis of uh, of the kind of the lifestyle that that uh, Mormon leaders would have had. So I think it was quite a tribute. Uh, none was. Uh, Five two weighed about 115 to 118 pounds at the height of his career. Napoleon was his ideal, <laughs> and he was a gay man and uh, made no secret of it. Nor did he uh, was he showy about it. And so I think his uh, his very strong friendship uh, with Mormon leaders, including Senator uh, Smoot, was quite a testament to the kind of uh, kind of man he was. In the book you place him uh, in you know there's there's a whole tradition at this time of the young man going west 
and uh, testing himself against the, uh, you know, the raw nature and such. Teddy Roosevelt's the epitome of this. Exactly, Tom. So uh, when he was about 26, he decided it was time for him to go west and test his mettle. And Frederick Remington, there were a whole variety of uh, Americans from the East Coast who uh, saw this sort of Western uh, tempering of their uh, character as something that they would do for a couple of years and then go back. In Nunn's case, uh, he didn't go back. And uh, it partly was because he ran into all kinds of trouble in his early uh, uh, couple of years in Leadville and Durango, Colorado. And uh, he so offended his siblings. Uh, he, was a, he and his uh, younger brother, P.N., were kind of the tail end of their family, uh, the children in the family. So the result was that uh, they had a debate as to whether or not they should send the money uh, to L.L. to bring him back east, and they decided no. Um, in fact, some of them even uh, <laughs> contemplated want... whether or not he might be better off dead. Really an appalling story. Wow. <laughs> they didn't want him back. That's right, at that time. In mm. fact, the the older siblings were debating how they were going to uh, plan to support uh, L.L. Nunn and his brother P.N. because they would never be able to be self-supporting. Mm. He ended up employing virtually the entire family after he became highly successful. Mm. He was, uh, we'll get into a bit of his personal life and, and such, and of course we're getting into education and, and Deep Springs and and Deep Springs Valley, which is a, it seems like a just an extraordinary place, a, a, a desert out there. Uh, but but uh, none, I get never married, right? Lifelong bachelor? Uh, lifelong bachelor, true, uh, which I think probably liberated an awful lot of his creative energy for his various uh, educational and entrepreneurial exploits, because... Uh, he did not have anybody else or anything else to invest himself in, and he had lots of energy to uh, to give. It seems like, uh, we'll get into this a little later, but Deep Springs, uh, the, the ethic there has a bit of asceticism, I believe. I don't know, was he an ascetic himself? Uh, well, he kind of flirted uh, when he first became uh, famous and wealthy after his uh, uh, Telluride Hydro success. Uh, he dreamed of uh, yachts and Mediterranean villas and so forth, but uh, quickly his old idealism, he was a philosopher at heart and a, a very uh, selfless human being. So after a, a brief uh, sojourn of uh, dreaming about opulence, he decided that, no, he should uh, go back to the asceticism that he had admired earlier in his life, and that uh, became part of his educational philosophy, as you know. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, learn more about uh, Lucian L. Nunn, L.L. Nunn, uh, and Deep Springs College. We'll uh, bring it forward to today, Issues in Higher Education uh, Today. We're talking with Jackson Newell, who is uh, author of a new book, The Electric Edge of Academe. It's out from University of Utah Press. And we have with us Ross Peterson, uh, a long time with uh, Utah State University. Each of these gentlemen, past president of Deep Springs uh, College. At a certain point, we'll, we'll continue the story following the break. Uh, L.L. Nunn um, changes his direction. He, he essentially leaves behind his industrial empire, gets very interested in higher education. This ends up uh, uh, being the founding of Deep Springs uh, College, which is in uh, eastern California. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Office of Research and Graduate Studies Sunrise Session, presenting Dr. Mac McKee, Director of the Utah Water Research Laboratory, May 15th at 7.30 a.m. in Salt Lake City. Details at sunrise.usu.edu slash sunrise. 
write a movie, it's a surprise hit, and then this happens. I was absolutely terrified when I first got the call that there was going to be a sequel. I thought I was going to barf. I'm Kai Rizdal, screenwriter Kay Cannon, and Pitch Perfect 2 next time on Marketplace. We'll have the rest of the day's business news, of course, and the numbers from Wall Street as well. It's from APM. Thursday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. I'm Tom Williams. My guests are Ross Peterson, who is former vice president for university advancement, professor of history at Utah State University, and uh, Jackson Newell, who's professor emeritus of educational leadership at University of Utah. And he's author of a new book out from University of Utah Press. It's called The Electric Edge of Academe, The Saga of Lucian L. Nunn and Deep Springs College. And uh, as we go along, we'll bring things forward to today, issues in higher education, Uh, Deep Springs College remains one of the most progressive, selective institutions of higher learning in America. We're going to learn about its founding uh, coming up in uh, this segment. Uh, So... Um, Ross Peterson, uh, this is still still small. This is, what, 30 students? Oh, I think the average through time has been 26, thir- okay. 13 each year. They all come for a two-year stay and uh, then transfer on to other schools. Uh, really don't have much of a problem being accepted. They're very bright, bright young people. Uh, early on, they had to, uh, as Jack talks about in his book, the way you recruited those students is often, you know, like none, people hadn't completed high school. But uh, as as Jack can tell much better than I, when he uh, was operating, the starting these uh, power plants around the West, uh, public education really hadn't taken off in Utah or Idaho. And he really felt there was a dramatic need to help the children of his workers. And I think this is one of the things that moved him toward a uh, experimental philosophy that indeed is, as you mentioned and Jack mentioned, isolation becomes a big part of the success of Deep Springs. Mm. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into talking about that. That's very interesting. One of the rules you set, when you, you, you're not supposed to go visit the neighboring towns. You're supposed to stay in this desert uh, valley. Uh, so Jackson Newell, uh, what, what, what propelled this? This, I guess, a need among the workers. He he needed to train them. Uh, need to find a new way to train them. Is that where this started? Uh, yes, it is. Every time uh, a major new technology comes along, it's young people who can pick it up quickly, and uh, older people have a very hard time adapting. We still see this with the use of computers, and uh, this was uh, emphatically true when Nunn started developing his hydroelectric uh, power plants. In that, uh, it was a very complicated business at the time, where all the uh, adjustment of voltages and RPMs and so forth had to be done manually. And uh, his older workers who had worked in his mines and so forth uh, didn't get it. Uh, he discovered that you could get an 18-year-old kid right out of high school uh, if he was bright and motivated and could quickly master the technology. So there were no electrical engineering schools at the time who uh, did uh, alternating current theory or practice. So uh, he had to develop his own schools to develop his own workforce. So. Uh, it all started with uh, a new vision of of uh, labor training. Hmm. And there were some high ideals as well. You mentioned he's a philosopher at heart, right? And he's uh, some of his favorite books are, are Moore's Utopia, Shakespeare. Some of yeah. these uh, some of these ideals began to form, I guess, and that this leads to Deep Springs. Is that what happens? Yes. Uh, so his uh, he had schools located at each power plant, and they were basically uh, uh, trade schools in the beginning. And then uh, he 
discovered that students could pick up what they needed to know about electricity pretty quickly, but they had to live in remote places uh, where the power plants were located in the mountains. Uh, so uh, he quickly became more interested in uh, could they govern their own affairs there without without having uh, older uh, company employees having to be there to, to do it. So he shifted his emphasis, therefore, in his uh, power plant schools from uh, electrical engineering to uh, the liberal arts. He wanted them to, to, to think about what a good community is and what a good life is and how they could practice that in the small settings of those power plants. So, uh, yeah, that's that's quite the shift. And this gets us into an argument that's raging today. Um, we've, you know, we've had the argument here in Utah of at least one state senator talking about degrees to nowhere. Um, and, and so, you know, the, under that argument, you, you should keep it technical, get people directly into, into careers. What what made that shift to liberal arts? In well, mind? he certainly respected technical education, but the shift to liberal arts, uh, uh, the heart of it was we all are uh, part of a society. We're all part of a culture much bigger than ourselves, and uh, we're responsible for that. And if nobody uh, is on the lookout for the uh, for anybody's welfare but their own, uh, then we have a society which degenerates and ultimately collapses. So uh, the larger vision of the, the liberal arts is that you can become a more decent human being, a more enlightened citizen, uh, a better parent, uh, all the other roles outside of the jobs we hold. Uh, if we do those with, uh, with grace and uh, with power, uh, everybody is better off. Uh, so you were at the Nun, I think, had a... a a vision that, that we should get education with a sense of mission, right? This, he, he connected things. He, he had an epiphany, I guess, and you have a little a quote in the book about uh, him recognizing that there's a relatively small group of men, these are mostly men, who got a, an extraordinary education and then were able to go out and uh, promulgate the British Empire. That's one. Yeah, Cecil Rhodes was uh, an inspiration to none. And uh, even though there was a lot about roads, that's not admirable. The idea that you uh, should take some uh, particularly motivated and, and good students and try to imbue them with a sense of responsibility for the common good. Uh, both uh, roads and none uh, use the term trustees of the nation uh, to assume responsibility, in other words, for, the, for your country, for your community, etc., and uh, so none, I think, owed a debt to Rhodes uh, very much in that way. Mm. Ross Peterson, I, I was interested to read in, in Jackson Newell's book, there were two rules. Begin, no alcohol and tobacco and isolation. We've talked about that. I don't know. If that, do those continue? Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Uh, partly the alcohol is because they're almost all underage. But, uh, mm. but also the isolation becomes very, very... Uh, Significant to none. I think in some of his earlier experiments, one was a place in Virginia. It was just too close to people and too many distractions. And so uh, in searching for a place, uh, he was able to uh, to be led to uh, Deep Springs Valley, which is and I think always will be isolated. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, about halfway between Las Vegas and Reno, barely inside the California border about 5,200 feet high, uh, high desert. Uh, the only thing in the valley is the college. And, uh, you know, 42 miles to Bishop, California, which is, you know, really the nearest town where people can shop. And and the, the students still uh, don't leave campus uh, while they're in session. Hmm. 
And I think what, what Jack mentioned and brings out so beautifully in the book and is the sense of responsibility that comes from uh, following the mission of non-relative to combining labor with academics with self-governance. And that, you know, every student that's there, and this has been from the beginning, uh, they have assigned labor commitments, and they, uh, and this is where they have to demonstrate a tremendous amount of responsibility for the entire community. And the sense of community comes, I think, in part from the performance of the students and the people that live there in being responsible and doing what they're asked to do. And then they, uh, you know, the students govern themselves and are very, very critical of those who do not perform. So it's, uh, it's you know, for nearly a century now, the, the fundamentals have been in, in place and are, are really uh, very, very sacred to the continuation of the school. Hmm. Jackson Newell, you, in your introduction, you quote an alumnus, uh, Park Honan, who uh, talks about the meaning of education on the ranch, I'll quote, uh, uh, Deep Springs means to discourage any passive attitude toward life by which responsibility is allowed to go by default to those who always stand ready to seize it unworthily. Seems to su- sum up, uh, you know, at least one of the, uh, part of the ethos of the of the college. Yes, it certainly does. Park Honan unfortunately died in, uh, within the last year. Oh, okay. Um, but I think the uh, just adding a bit of a, of a capstone on what Ross uh, just said so well, um, I like to think of it as an onus that uh, none placed on the shoulders of every student, and in fact every faculty and staff member there too. And that is, uh, I'm going to give you the very best education I can dream up, scot-free. You're considered an owner of the college when you're here, not a scholarship recipient or a, a, a customer who's paying tuition. Uh, you own the place. And uh, what I expect in return for this is that you go out and dedicate your life uh, to the service of humanity. And he was wise enough not to define uh, what he thought service to humanity would be. He said, that's up to you. Uh, You know what your skills are. You know what your predispositions are. But whatever you do, your responsibility from now on is to go out and do what you can to improve life on this planet. Hmm. So no tuition? No no scholarships? No. Yeah. It's totally free, and it's one of the things that uh, presidents have to do is make sure that there are funds there. Yeah. And uh, Jack did it magnificently. Yeah. As did Ross. <laughs> so uh, I guess the students are working. You're working on a working ranch there. That's mm-hmm. that's part of it. But uh, I imagine this has to be supported by endowments, by money you go out and raise. Is that the... Well, I think, uh, you know, originally there was an endowment, and then there was the crash, and... Uh, so there's a, a number of things that are done. Uh, the alumni are amazing. Uh, no matter what they, you could say, uh, the high percentage who give back is, is very, very significant. And uh, Jack was able to expand that, uh, and I did as well, to parents, because you really, you know, they, they come to love the place. At first, they're all pretty suspicious, but... Uh, and then, uh, you know, you, you can go to certain foundations, but, uh, and then you sell cattle. And, uh, I mean, it's a working cattle ranch. So you have a number of sources for, for revenue to keep the, the school going. You, uh, we all eat together in a boarding house. Uh, there, it, it, is a, it is an isolated community where people have to learn to get along. Hmm. 
Let me follow up a little bit, Jackson Newell, um, on this idea of self-governance. This was an ideal, wasn't it, LL Nunn, that the students would students would, would lead? That's true. Uh, the idea is that uh, if you're going to prepare yourself to uh, lead in the larger world later in your life, uh, you better get used to it now, and you better begin uh, testing your skills, um, finding out what your patience is, finding out what your capacity to work uh, productively with other people. Uh, can be, and uh, you can only do that by giving students enormous responsibility and seeing how they handle it. Hmm. Ross Peterson, this is uh, highly competitive, right? Deep Springs goes after students who could choose Harvard or Yale or, you know, whatever. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things that uh, has become, you know, a real tradition because not not everyone, of course, uh, can survive in that kind of atmosphere. So, uh, I think in the years, the last 20 years, you usually average between, now it's up well over 200, but probably 140 to 200 applicants for those 13 slots, and almost everyone knows that it's uh, you know, very, very high test scores, very, very high service record of students, uh, GPA, uh, essays. It's a rigorous process, primarily led by students who... Uh, who on the applications committee with maybe a faculty member and a staff member and eight or nine students and a good share of the community now gets involved in the first round and then they invite uh, 40 to 45 students to come at their own expense to visit the place and then try to narrow it to the 13 and then compete with uh, schools around the world to get those 13 to come. And this is what what kinds of students want to come to Deep Springs. It's it's pretty selective. It'd be self-selecting in a, in a way. So you're going to have manual labor. You're going to have uh, good education. You're going to live in an isolated place. What what kind of students come? Well, students uh, rarely uh, go to Deep Springs <laughs> if they have an agricultural background in their own right. If you grew up on a dairy farm milking cows, uh, going to Deep Springs to work on a farm and a ranch doesn't look very good. <laughs> you'd, uh, you'd want to change your pace, yeah. That's right, yeah. Uh, it also, I think, tends to attract students who are uh, independent thinkers, and uh, many of them are fairly headstrong, uh, having been uh, bright and often frustrated by high school um, requirements and high school uh, bureaucracies. And uh, the idea of self-governance is very appealing to these students. Hmm. So I want to get into uh, uh, making a connection to you know, uh, today and to higher education in general. Um, let me start with Jackson Newell on this. Is 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 this? I guess in a way, it's designed not to be scalable. You, you keep you know Deep Springs itself. You keep it to thirty or forty students, but there are probably some ideas that can be used generally. You, you've been involved in higher education, several institutions. What uh, what of this can be used? Very much that, Tom. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The idea that you give students uh, much more responsibility than we typically do in higher education uh, to shape the universities that they're in, uh, to participate in deciding what kind of courses ought to be required to get a baccalaureate degree, um, to serve on university investment committees to help decide uh, whether we should have socially responsible uh, investments uh, or whether the, uh, the trustees should be blind to those considerations. Uh, there are just so many ways that universities can incorporate students' voices 
and trust students to uh, accept responsibility along with other university officials and trustees. Uh, and it makes a huge difference. I guess I've spent much of my career at the University of Utah trying to uh, advance that principle uh, among others. Hmm. You know, and I, th- I think there was a time, uh, you know, coming maybe out of the 1960s where where student engagement was, you know, on search committees, on uh, the whole concept of uh, student evaluation, those types of things. And like Jack said, on, you know, to try to get them engaged in creating curriculum, those types of things that, uh, that I think has gone downhill. I, I don't see the student engagement uh, nearly as much. And uh, one of the great things about Deep Springs that I think could be transmitted is you have to have a fundamental trust in your students. I mean, in, and in the process that you're doing in higher education, that it's not a top-down kind of thing. That uh, I'll never forget one student. Uh, one day I was I was working with them. Uh, you know, Jack and I we we both would go out and work with them because that's how you get to know the students better. But he said, um, you know, every job that I do here. I'll probably never do again in my life, but while I'm here, I'll do it better than it's ever been done. And then he went on and, uh, you know, graduated from Harvard, graduated first in his law class from Yale, but he is he is still committed to what Jack talked about, and that is the service to humanity. And I don't think school, universities uh, and people in higher education do that enough to embed in the students that this is your program. This is your opportunity to make a difference. And, uh, and I think we sell ourselves short in that regard. Mm. So is to follow up with that, I'm, I want to transition to money. <laughs> this, you know, so it's free education at Deep Springs, but that's for 30 or 40 students. And, of course, that model is probably not going to work at a Utah State or University of Utah. Um, but, but I want to connect that up with that sense of, sense of ownership. Apparently, Deep Springs, you come in, it, you don't pay the money, but you feel invested. Well, that's true. I, th- I think definitely, and that's one of the things that has to happen really, really early in the process. And I think the way that, you know, the students and under Jack's guidance that I inherited – they did that as part of the application process. I think the students understood that we're going to come there, that they were what uh, none called the beneficial owners. And, and they understood that, uh, you know, the faculty that were there, the staff, uh, those people were all colleagues. And uh, although, you know, you have to have to some degree on labor, especially a chain of command, but there, the sense of community that, that he envisioned, I think maybe at universities to some degree, I know at the liberal education program that Jack tried to get going at, uh, very successfully at the University of Utah for a time, and honors programs, things like that, where, where you have a, a number of select students, we don't challenge them to, to be owners at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. Jackson Newell, is, is that is challenge part of it? In Deep Springs, you're isolated, you're challenged, you're, it's manual labor. Uh, that's That contrasts very boldly with, I guess, at least the popular conception of some students where this is a you know, four-year extended adolescence. Very definitely. You're right, Tom. Um, we sometimes speak of uh, Deep Springs uh, using a couple of terms, and one of them is it's a strenuous life. 
Uh, it's strenuous intellectually, the competition uh, in classes and so forth, and the cooperation. But the challenge of the classes that are offered uh, is very strong, and uh, as are the uh, challenges of uh, the ranch labor, uh, working with animals that are big enough to do you in, uh, learning the skills to do that, uh, getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to milk the cows, all the different kinds of things, uh, just continue to, to push students uh, to the very limits of what they can do. Hmm. Ross Peterson, I, I suppose if we were totally ambitious, and I'm saying this mostly facetiously, you know, you could transform USU. You could move it out to Clarkston. Everybody could milk cows. Well, but but the but the but the scale is is the problem, right? Right, and and you know, I think uh, I, I mean I I think about this all the time because uh, you know I think the final uh, not that there's a final judgment on a, on an institution, but by their fruits you shall know them. And you know, we at the universities you graduate all kinds of wonderful people, and you. You help them, and they, uh, you know, some are scholarships, some have to work part time. But I mean, I mean, the whole process is really, really good. But uh, you know, the thing that happens in Deep Springs, I think, is when you look at it in the long run. And sometimes the long run isn't very long before these young people start having a real impact. And part of it comes from that educational experience because they're able to put the the I and me to bed for two years. And you have to think in terms of we and us. And a lot of the students that, you know, were there that Jack and I have both seen, and, and it's happened for years, you know, they might leave and they'll get accepted to some school, but then they'll take a leave and they'll write to you from an AIDS clinic in Kenya or they're working at an orphanage in Cambodia or they're down in Guatemala working in or Bolivia on, on a small farm helping people. And then they'll go back and finish and 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 you know move on with their life and uh you know we've we've had two past students just in the past few months get really really major national recognition one for pulitzer prize one for a tremendous article written in the atlantic monthly about the uh, ecclesiastical origins of isis and and these are people that uh you know they just have had an opportunity to blossom and so what I worry about is not giving as many students an opportunity in the in the large institutions, and you know you can do it in cells within the within the university, but by our nature, like at Utah State and Land Grant College, we try not to be elite, and there is an elitism about an intellectual elitism, a a, a pride that goes with successful self governance and the responsibility. Uh, you know when the, when Jack brings together a group of the alumni, uh, it's interesting, most of them talk about their labor. Hmm. They, they, you know, they may remember a professor fondly. They may say, whoops, we blew it when we hired that one because they're responsible for hiring the staff, the faculty. And so, uh, but they talk about what they learned from failure. And if you're going to work on a farm, you're going to fail. Hmm. That is interesting, isn't it? Uh, I want to go back to that. So the students hire the faculty? Students choose the faculty? They do. And uh, they release the faculty uh, if they uh, find that they're not performing to the level they want. Wow. Uh, this is an interesting illustration, though, of the self-governance, and that is that uh, students uh, hire the faculty. The only person who can override a decision of the faculty is the president, and you don't want to do that very often because it poisons the well. Mm-hmm. So students choose the faculty, and then they uh, ask the faculty to uh, submit 
uh, two course proposals for every course that they will actually teach. The students, therefore, choose the courses that they want. Now, put yourself in their shoes. Uh, you're sitting in a class after the first month, and it's not going well at all. Well, you can only blame yourself. You say, well, we chose this woman, and uh, we chose this class, and now it's not working. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess we had better find a way to make this class function well. And that's where this the we comes in as contrasted with saying, I'm unhappy with this class, and I'm going to get out of it, or I'm going to punish this professor. Uh, you've become part of a community that says, uh, we're in this class, and this class needs to work. And I'm responsible as much as the faculty member is, and uh, so let's figure it out. Hmm. That was an interesting point, Ross Peterson, that you learn, probably learn a little more from failure than you do from success. And in a setting like this, a very challenging setting, uh, you are going to fail. Yes, and, and you know, I think the, the growth that comes is being able, as Jack just described, uh, I remember one incident where, you know, the, the search had come out and they had selected a professor, and within the second day, he wanted to change everything. You know, I mean, he'd never been there. He wanted to change things. He'd even challenged some trustees at a reunion we had, and, and uh, the chairman of the curriculum committee said, you know, uh, this isn't going to work. And uh, so we had meetings with him, and he took a course of action. Well, I'm going to organize the faculty against the students. And by next, and to make clear that that uh, chairman of the curriculum committee was a student. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The chairman of the curriculum committee is a student, and that's. And then uh, you know, by the next year, most of that faculty was gone. Hmm. Oh, if you just join us, we're talking about uh, Deep Springs College. It's an exclusive college, very unique in eastern California, founded by L.L. Nunn. We've learned a little bit of his history. He was at the beginnings of A.C. Power, along with Nikola Tesla and George Westinghouse. And then at a certain point, turned away from his business and invested his wealth and his poor health. He had tuberculosis into this uh, ideal he had, this idea of uh, liberal education in the desert. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, uh, I want to talk about the desert and uh, what L.L. Nunn called the voice, listening to the voice of the desert. More following the break. Congratulations to Maria Guadarrama, USU graduate and College of Humanities and Social Sciences valedictorian for her honor of a 2015 Humanity in Action Fellowship Award. The highly competitive award is granted to students according to academic standing, active civic participation in human rights issues, and outstanding recommendations. UPR congratulates Maria Guadarrama for her honor of a 2015 Humanity in Action Fellowship Award. Coming up this Thursday at 10 o'clock on the Zesty Garden is a discussion on water conservation measures with Kelly Cope, USU Extension Water Conservation and Turf Grass Specialist. Then Darla and Michelle are back with a tasty trek and a discussion about herbs. Then Nancy Williams honors mothers on petals and prose. And for a couple of great rhubarb recipes from Dan Drost, visit the Zesty Garden website from the Programs tab at upr.org. That's the Zesty Garden each Thursday morning at 10 here on UPR. On the next Humankind... It's a question of perspective and remembering what I really care about, which might be 
being kind and not being right. Buddhist meditation teacher Sharon Salzberg, the author of Loving Kindness. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. Thursday night at 8.30 on Utah Public Radio. This is Terry Guy, Business Development Manager for Utah Public Radio. Underwriting Public Radio enhances a corporate image and projects quality, credibility, and stability. Separate your organization from the competition and reach a quality audience. To include UPR in your branding campaign, call 435-797-3215. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached the last segment of the program. We're talking uh, with Jackson Newell and Ross Peterson who are past presidents of Deep Springs College. This is a fascinating institution. It's uh, set in the Deep Springs uh, Valley in California, a, a desert setting, and uh, was established by L.L. Nunn. Very interesting history that he has as well. The book is The Electric Edge of Academe, written by uh, Jackson Newell. And we just have uh, five or six minutes left in the program. I want to talk about, uh, Jackson Newell, you... Um, you have experience uh, all across the board, Deep Springs, as a student, as president, as a trustee. Um, so I wanted to, to get into talking about the setting. We've talked a little bit about this, a description of where this is and the, the desert setting. This was important to L.L. Nunn, I believe, and he talked about the voice of the desert. He did, and the voice of the desert to him was uh, the experience of being in solitude, uh, the experience of being in uh, grandeur, in, in, a, in a beautiful setting. Uh, so that your mind has a, a place to expand and uh, to elevate. And so uh, he was not uh, uh, he was not narrowly religious, I guess I would say, in terms of uh, being committed to uh, one uh, Protestant denomination or another. Uh, but he was very keenly attuned to the importance of uh, the spiritual dimensions of a life. And he wanted that to be central in students' experience. And that's one of the reasons that he wanted Deep Springs to be isolated, as he said, away from commercial pursuits and commercial influences, and uh, close to nature and in a place where uh, you can kind of center your being and uh, make the most of it. Ross Peterson, uh, I'll direct this to you first. What What is that isolation like? What is what, is that, <laughs> what does that do? I think a lot of us have experienced this for short periods of time. No, I, th- I think, uh, you know, you, it really grows on you, and I think it was probably different when Jack first went there as a student in the 50s because now it involves such decisions as a student makes that we're not going to have Internet in the dorm. Uh, you, uh, you don't have, you know, uh, phones that work very well, and you don't have uh, cell phones for sure, and there's no television. Uh, yet the students can read, you know, and read. And, uh, you know, I teach a lot of contemporary stuff, and they're on top of everything. But I think what, you know, uh, and in all honesty, my wife felt it a lot more than I did, the, the beauty of the desert and the passion of quiet and the ability to, to go for long walks and visit. One of the things I love most about Deep Springs, it is a fantastically verbal place. You cannot hide very easily, and we all eat together, and you've got committees going, and you've got classes going, and you've got work details. Like 
when I was there, you know, we put in a solar energy field and all the students were engaged in some way. There's just an unbelievable opportunity to talk. Mm. Yeah, I, I, and I would to, And to listen. Yeah. And to listen to, uh, to quiet. Mm. Let me uh, get in an email here we've just received. This is from uh, Douglas Jackson Smith, uh, professor of sociology. I didn't know that uh, Professor Jackson Smith is a Deep Springs alum, uh, so I'll just read his email here, uh, who's emailed us at upraxis at gmail.com. He says, as a Deep Springs alum, class of 81, current USU professor, it was great to hear Ross and Jack's voices on the radio on the way to work today. Deep Springs was instrumental in my own life path. I thrived in a context where intense intellectual study was combined with tangible physical labor. There's something intangible and invaluable about uh, combining the study of great works in humanities, literature, and social sciences with farm work and interactions with the local farmers and ranchers. I still find it important to balance my own academic work with farming. I raise sheep and efforts to interact with people outside the ivory tower. The intense community life also made it obvious how much our own decisions and efforts affect the people around us and shaped my own personal commitment to building community and living the values of selflessness and service to society. Finally, I'm also aware of a long connection between Deep Springs and Utah. While the school draws applicants from across the country and increasingly the world, there's a long history of deep springers with ties to Utah. One current student is the son of another USU professor and Logan High graduate. Uh, can Jack and Ross talk a bit about some of these Utah connections? That's the question at the end. Uh, thanks to that, Douglas Jackson Smith from USU. Just have a couple of minutes, uh, Jackson Newell. I wonder if you'd uh, maybe take up that question. Utah connections? Utah Connections go all the way back to the beginning, uh, with Nunn himself developing his uh, early educational ideas here, and uh, being here uh, as the center of his uh, life until he founded Deep Springs and moved there in 1917. Mm. Uh, the majority of his early trustees were uh, from Utah. They were uh, generally uh, lofty members of his staff uh, before uh, he appointed them trustees and then died. And uh, three presidents uh, of Deep Springs, uh, not only Ross and myself, but also Sherwin Howard from Weber State, uh, served in the last 25 years as presidents of Deep Springs. Lots of connections between the two, a number of students, including uh, Douglas Jackson Smith. Yeah. Right. Even in the very first class, Walter Welty, who became a professor of voice here, who had never even, I think, completed uh, junior high before he went to Deep Springs, then went to Cornell. He was one of the first class, and Robert Aird out of Provo, who became a great physician. And then, uh, you know, there were there have always been a number of students, and uh, I'm glad uh, I'm glad Doug wrote in. He's a great man, and Eric Mugler from here in Logan, uh, Pete Daniels, who's there now. So we have good ties. Excellent. Just have thirty seconds. We'll give uh, Jackson Newell the, the last word. How would you How would you sum up? I'd sum it up by saying uh, if biodiversity is important in the natural world, it certainly is important in the uh, the human world. And institutions like Deep Springs, it seems to me, keep alive uh, very different and important educational ideas that uh, have potential to greatly change the way we think about education at uh, USU and the University of Utah and elsewhere. And we'll leave it there. Uh, the book is The Electric Edge of Academe, The Saga of Lucian L. Nunn at Deep Springs College. Author is Jackson Newell. He's been uh, one of our guests, been associated also with uh, University of uh, Utah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Great pleasure, Tom. And uh, Ross Peterson, who's uh, also a past president of uh, Deep Springs College and, of course, connected with uh, Utah State University. Thank you to you. Okay, thank you. Good luck, Jack, with the book. Yeah, thank you, Ross. Take care. And uh, join us tomorrow with Sherry Quinn in with a science topic. We hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today. 
Tchaikovsky didn't like many other composers, but he loved Mozart. He once said, It was Mozart who inspired my first efforts and made me love music above anything else in this world. We'll hear Tchaikovsky's homage to Mozart, a piece called Mozartiana, from a concert in Warsaw, Poland, on the next Performance Today from APM. Thursday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Congratulations to Rachel Wheeler, USU graduate and music instructor at Roosevelt Junior High, for receiving the Sorensen Legacy Award for Excellence in Our Education. The award recognizes the educators who embrace the arts at Utah's public schools. UPR congratulates Rachel Wheeler for her honor of the Sorensen Legacy Award for Excellence in Our Education. Did you know that not only do we learn best and remember more when we enjoy success at an appropriately challenging experience, we also will be more willing to seek out other challenging experiences. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. This week on American Roots, we're rocking and rolling. First with the girl group icon Lala Brooks of the Crystals. Then we'll take a sea cruise on over to Gretna, Louisiana and visit with Frankie Ford plus a jukebox full of doo-wop and sock-hop hits. I'm Nick Spitzer. Join me for American Roots from PRX. Sunday night at 6 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at USU. Thank you for listening. Time now, 10 o'clock.